Welcome to our teaching series entitled The Boys of Summer. We come today to the final installment. We are in the last of the minor prophets, the prophet Malachi. Malachi is by print the final book of the New Testament. It really stands alongside Nehemiah as the very end of the Old Testament story. The prophets have spoken uh, over several hundred years in, in the series that we've covered this summer. We saw Amos and Hosea early on speaking about God's coming judgment, first on Israel and then on Judah. Eventually, Israel is, uh, is captured by the Assyrians and, and, and taken off to disappear into the pages of history. 150 years later, the, the nation of Judah suffers the same fate, captured by the Babylonian Empire and carried off into exile. But because it was through Judah, the two southern tribes, Judah and Benjamin, that the remnant was going to be preserved, the, the, the seed of the Messiah was going to be uh, secured, God allowed Judah, even in exile, to maintain her identity. And so 70 years uh, roughly in, in exile in the Babylonian Empire, Judah was able to have enough identity to not be assimilated into the surrounding cultures so that it was possible under the direction of, of the, the new kings of, of the Persian Empire that defeated the Babylonians under Cyrus and, and eventually under Darius. It was possible for Judah to return to her homeland. They came in waves of refugees under different leaders. First, there was a wave that came under Zerubbabel, and we saw Zerubbabel and his high priest Joshua. They had alongside of them the prophets Haggai and Zechariah. They brought the people back and helped to rebuild the temple, the central reality that defined Jerusalem as the city of God. Over the course of the generations that followed, uh, the city itself began to be built up until such time that Nehemiah was utilized by God to bring yet another wave of refugees back into the, into the promised land, now to rebuild the walls around the city. Alongside Jeremiah is the final of the prophets, the prophet Malachi. He's about 80 years or so after Haggai and Zechariah. And as we get to Nehemiah in the historical section and Malachi in the prophetic section of the Old Testament, we really do come to the end of the story. What we have in Malachi is a prophet who is going to speak to the people because uh, in the hard times of reestablishing their homeland, Judah has begun to waver again in their faith. You remember Haggai and Zechariah came along and, and, and they had faltered on building the temple and it, it was hard and there was opposition from the people who lived in the land and the prophets came along and spurred the people to, to, to new enthusiasm to, to really accomplish their goal. The temple was, was built and celebrated as, as a great day. But as time continued to pass, what happens is that the prosperity that they thought that God had promised them failed to materialize. 
life was still hard. There was still opposition from, from those who lived in the land who were not a part of the covenant people. And the spirits of, of, of Judah began to really waver again to the point where they maintained the activity of the temple, but really lost sight of the heart worship that came as a result of this covenant relationship with the one true God. God gives them one final prophet, Malachi. And Malachi's job is to be the voice of God in a conversation that God has with his people. As we read through the four chapters that we have of Malachi, what we find is a style of writing where God makes a charge. He issues a complaint against his people, and they ask a question in return. God says, you've done this. And they say, how have we done that? And God says, well, you've done this. And they say, how have we done that? And this dialogue of God making a complaint, Judah feigning innocence as though they have no idea what God is talking about, and then the prophets speaking on behalf of God to explain what the people have done or what they have failed to do and calling them back to a relationship to this God who is unchanging. In fact, that's the good news message of the book of Malachi. God is unchanging. Now, part of the reason this is such a crucial message for the final prophet is because at the end of Malachi, at the close of the book of Nehemiah, the Old Testament really comes uh, to completion. And the people of God are about to enter into a 400-year span of silence. God doesn't speak. There are no prophets. There's no revelation. There's no new word. 400 years. If, if you were going to leave for an extended period from your family, if you were going to leave and know that you weren't going to be able to communicate for an extended period, what would be your final words? I suspect your final words to your family would be something along the lines of, I love you. Don't ever forget and don't ever doubt. The message of the book of Malachi to the people of Judah is Yahweh, the promise-keeping God of Israel. He says, remember, I'm love. I love you. I've cared for you. I've looked after you. You are my children. And I never change. It's the perfect message to close out the Old Testament as they entered into four centuries of silence. And we will see that silence broken by what I believe is the final Old Testament prophet. Only the final Old Testament prophet shows up in the New Testament, and his name is John the Baptist. So, open your Bibles to Malachi. It's easy enough to find. It's the book right before Matthew. Malachi, chapter 1, beginning with verse 1. I'm going to call this chapter, When Faith Becomes Religion. 
You can already see in the, in, in the first point where God is going to take this charge. The people who have a temple now, and the temple is filled with activity, but the activity is not hearts made soft before God's presence. It's just religious obligation. Chapter 1, verse 1. A pronouncement. The word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. Like we've seen in other prophets, this is uh, an actual uh, official formula that announces this as not just Malachi's opinions, not just the prophet's own thoughts. This is official revelation given from God to his spokesman, and it has all the authority of God himself behind these words. The word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord. Yet you ask, how have you loved us? You see the dialogue? God says, I've loved you. And Judah's response is, how have you loved us? You see, they didn't, they didn't believe the prosperity that had been promised had come through. The, the city was still defenseless. There was no, uh, completed wall, uh, around the city. Uh, they, they really had gone on with life as though God is, uh, is a great idea, but essentially irrelevant to everyday living. It's not too drastically different from many American churches in 2020. God's a nice idea. We like to read the Bible and, and hear an inspirational speech on a weekly basis. But, but, but the reality of God is a little bit irrelevant to the way I make decisions, the way I go about my business, the way I manage my life. That's where Judah was. They said, how have you loved us? Well, wasn't Esau Jacob's brother? This is the Lord's declaration. Even so, I loved Jacob, but I hated Esau. I turned his mountains into a wasteland and gave his inheritance to the desert jackals. Though Edom says we have been devastated, but we will rebuild, we will rebuild the ruins. The Lord of armies says this. They may build, but I will demolish. They will be called a wicked country and the people of the Lord has, and the people of the Lord has cursed forever. Your own eyes will see this and you yourselves will say, the Lord is great even beyond the borders of Israel. Well, it's interesting what they, what, what God says is he uses a phrase that's quoted in other places in the Bible and the language seems a little over the top. It doesn't mean he loved Jacob and hated Esau, the twin brothers that, that were grandsons of Abraham. Oh, it's a, it's a, almost a poetic way of simply emphasizing that there was a choice and the choice was so significant as if to separate the two, the one chosen and the one not chosen by love and hate. I loved Jacob. I hated Esau. Now we've seen in the other minor prophets that the descendants of Esau were a nation called Edom. Edom was a perpetual thorn in the flesh, a, a burr under the blanket of the, uh, of the covenant people. And so there was a huge rivalry with Edom. In fact, Edom was to be judged by God. And we see this uh, in Amos. We see it in Obadiah. Uh, we see it in, in one other book, maybe, um, maybe Habakkuk. We see Edom being judged by God because they were perpetually harassing Israel and Judah and trying to hinder them. They were, they were rivals that, that sort of the rivalry couldn't be satisfied. 
God says, they they say to God in, in chapter one of Malachi, how have you loved us? And he said, well, I can show you how I've loved you. I allowed you to maintain your identity. You went into exile as a punishment for your sins, but you kept your identity and I brought you back home. Look across the border at your cousins, the, the Edomites. I allowed their nation to be destroyed. They're under the illusion that they're going to come back just like you and they're going to rebuild their nation. But I'm telling you, I'm God. I'm not going to allow it. I've loved you because I have done something for you no other nation has done. Nations don't march into exile only to come back two generations later with an intact identity as a distinct people. I mean, the whole point of carrying a nation into exile was to assimilate them uh, into, into an empire so that they didn't have the ability to cause rebellion, to stand against. They lost their identity. They just became the mongrel part of the population at large. That happened to the nations that were conquered by the Assyrians, to the nations conquered by the Babylonians, but it didn't happen to Judah. I preserved your identity. I kept you as my people. He says, I've loved you. And when you see Edom unable to rebuild, you'll know that I'm not only a God who determines the destiny of my people, I'm the God of the globe and I determine the destiny of all peoples. Verse six, he's going to take us, um, He's going to take us um, to talk about leadership. He says, A son honors his father and a servant his master. But if I am a father, where's my honor? And if I am a master, where is your fear of me? Says the Lord of armies to you priests who despise my name. This is the next charge, the next dialogue that's going to take place. He turns to the priest and he says, Listen, um, you refer to me as father, you refer to me as master, but you don't show me the respect that a son is supposed to show his father. You don't show me the honor that a, that a, a slave shows his master. Uh, why is that? You're the priest, you're the spiritual guides, the shepherds for my people. Uh, why do you not lead them to have a proper relationship with me? Yet you ask, how have we despised your name? You see, there's, there's, you can almost hear it's the innocence of a child who's trying to get out of something that he knows he's, knows he's guilty of. They, God says, you, you have defiled my name. How? How did we do that? We, we didn't do that. He says, you've de- despised my name by presenting defiled food on my altar. How have we defiled you? They ask. When you say the Lord's table is contemptible. And here's the explanation. When you present a blind animal for sacrifice, is it not wrong? And when you present a lame or sick animal, is it not wrong? Bring it to your governor. Would he be pleased with you or show you favor? Asked the Lord of armies. And now plead for God's favor. Will he be gracious to us? 
Since this has come from your hands, will he show any of you favor? Ask the Lord of armies. I wish one of you would shut up the temple doors so that you would no longer kindle a useless fire on my altar. I am not pleased with you, says the Lord of armies, and I will accept no offering from your hands. This is pretty powerful. We just started. This is chapter 1, and God is right in the middle of his people. He says, I'm love, but you refuse to recognize my love. They say, well, how have you loved us? We don't know about this. He says, you've despised my name. How have we despised your name? Because you bring contempt on my on my sacrifices. How did we do that? Because you don't take my worship seriously. You bring sacrifices. The sacrifices in the Old Testament, there was a strict guideline. They were to be animals that were checked by the priest, animals that were flawless. In fact, they were often cut open and the organs, the internal organs were examined because if there was a tumor, a growth, if there was anything that was not perfect about the animal, it wasn't acceptable. It had to be the best of the best in order for it to be an appropriate sacrifice and offering to God. But see, they'd gotten spiritually lazy and the priests had let it slide because people were not bringing the best of their flocks, the best of their herds. They were bringing the lame, the blind, the weak. They were bringing animals that were on their last leg. They're about to die anyway. So why not throw them in God's direction? And the priests were supposed to examine these offerings, but when they would examine them, probably for a little, a little, uh, 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 gift on the side, They'd sign off and let them go right through. So God was being offered not the best that the people had. He was being despised by, by, by the people offering him things that he considered to be contemptible. In fact, he, remember this temple has only been there for about a generation. This is the second temple. They rebuilt it after the exile. They've celebrated the reinstitution of sacrifice. I mean, it's the heart and soul. The, the beating heart of Judaism is in place. And God says this, I wish one of you would shut the doors so that you no longer even light a useless fire on my altar. I'm not pleased with you and I won't accept any offering from your hands. Why don't you just lock the doors of the church and quit showing up? Because I'm not interested in anything you're bringing me. And then listen to this. You want to talk about shocking. You want to talk about God going for the jugular. Verse 11. My name will be great among the nations from the rising of the sun to its setting. Incense and pure offerings will be presented in my name in every place because my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of armies. Look at what he just did. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The God of Moses and Joshua, the God of, uh, 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 of, of all of the, the judges, the God of all of the prophets, the God of David and Solomon, the God who is so closely identified with the entire history of, of, of Israel and Judah now says, why don't you just put a padlock on the temple doors because I'm not interested in anything coming off the altar. You've, you've, you've made it worthless to me, but I'll tell you this. I'm going to go out to the other nations of the world, the Gentile nations, the non-Jewish nations, the non-covenant people in all the nations, and guess what? They're going to come to me, and they're going to honor me, and they're going to worship me. Wow. What did God just say to his own people? I've chosen you. 
I'm in covenant with you. I've loved you. I've preserved your identity even through exile. But now I'm just going to shut you down because what you offer me is worthless. And I'm going to go out to the Gentiles around the earth and I'm going to, I'm going to be honored by the Gentiles. This would have shocked the sensibilities of the Jews in Jerusalem in that day. Why? Yahweh's not the God of the Gentiles. Well, actually, He always was. Which is why the prophets always issued messages of judgment on other nations. Because the message was, God is not just the God of the Jews. He is the God of all creation. God went to Abraham in, in the early chapters of Genesis and said, I'm gonna, I'm gonna make your family into a mighty nation and through your nation, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. God has always been the God of all the nations. But Israel had so zeroed in on their privilege. They'd so locked in on, on, on their exclusivity as the covenant people that they had completely lost any idea that what they had was meant for everybody. And here God is rattling their cage by saying, why don't you just shut down what you're doing because you're so bad at it and I'm going to go over here to the Gentiles and I'm going to make myself known and they're going to come to me in worship. Wow. Wow. When faith becomes religion, God loses interest. He doesn't care for our activity. He doesn't care for our checklist of respectable things that we think He wants from us. What He wants today, what He has always wanted, and that is the hearts of people to be open to be in personal relationship with Him. It's always been a heart connection that God desires. It's never been religious duties. Verse 12, he said in verse 11, my name will be great among the nations, but you, you are profaning it when you say the Lord's table is defiled and its product, its food is contemptible. You also say, look, what a nuisance. And you scorn it, says the Lord of armies. You bring stolen, lame, or sick animals. You bring this as an offering. Am I to accept that from your hands? Asked the Lord. The deceiver is cursed who has an acceptable male in his flock and makes a vow but sacrifices a defective animal to the Lord. For I am a great king, says the Lord of armies, and my name will be feared among the nations. He says, do you really think you can get away with this? You make a big pledge, you put it out so that, so that everybody thinks you're some kind of spiritual giant. And when you make a big pledge and everybody goes, wow, look, look at that guy. And then instead of bringing your pledge, you slip something through that is a throwaway, that's a discard. I don't think so. Because my name is great. And I will honor those who recognize that my name is great, but you, you cheater, you deceiver, you liar. I'm not interested in what comes from you. You see, an offering that comes without the accompanying attitude of the heart is an offering that God doesn't care about. Because it's never been about the offering. It's always been about the heart. 
Well, this lead takes us to the second chapter where he talks about broken covenants. Chapter 2, therefore, this decree is for you priests. He's still on the spiritual leaders. Man, they, all the way through the Old Testament, those who have responsibility to provide justice, the judges and the politicians, God is especially hard on them. And the ones who have the responsibility to provide spiritual leadership, the priests and the prophets, God is especially hard on them. Listen, what makes you think it's any different today? Those who are pastors, those who are shepherds of churches, they have an accountability before God. And God does not take their laziness, their false teaching, their casual handling of his word. He does not take that lightly. By the same token, politicians and judges who have a responsibility to promote justice, to protect the needy, to defend the weak, when they're corrupt and they create a system that that, that, that puts their feet on the necks of the very people they're supposed to protect and provide for. Listen, that is not a way to get on God's good side. Therefore, this decree is for you priests. If you don't listen and if you don't take it to heart to honor my name, says the Lord of armies, I will send a curse among you and I will curse your blessings. In fact, I have already begun to curse them because you are not taking it to heart. In other words, here's a priest who makes a living receiving offerings and giving a blessing in return. People come to the temple, they bring the priest offerings, he gives them a blessing. God says, I'm going to take every blessing you've given and I'm going to turn it around, it's going to be a curse. People are going to stop coming to you because they're going to figure out that every time you bless them, their life gets worse. Your blessings are curses because you don't speak for me. Verse 3, look, I'm going to rebuke your descendants. I'll spread animal waste over their faces, the waste from your festival sacrifices, and you will be taken away with it. Then you will know that I sent you this decree so that my covenant with Levi may continue, says the Lord of armies. My covenant with him was one of life and peace, and I gave these to him. It called for reverence, and he revered me and stood in awe of my name. True instruction was in his mouth and nothing wrong was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and integrity and turned many from iniquity. For the lips of a priest should guard knowledge and people should desire instruction from his mouth because he is the messenger of the Lord of armies. He says, listen, you're a disgrace to the heritage of the priesthood that you've received. I gave my life and I gave my peace to Levi, the patriarch of the tribe of Levi. They stood with Moses on the day of the gold calf and they became the priest that I gave the privilege of serving the Lord. You know, Levi is the only one of the 12 original tribes that was not given a possession of, of land, an inheritance of property in the promised land. Instead, the inheritance for the tribe of Levi was the privilege of serving God as his priest. They were scattered all through the other tribes all across the promised land. The Levites were the ones who were given responsibility to teach people how to worship. They were given the ones to, to, to teach what was true. They were charged to instruct people in holiness. And Levi did that. It says that he turned people away from iniquity. He walked with integrity. And yet now all of these generations have passed 
and those who claim to be the inheritors of the privileges of Levi, God says, you're the exact opposite of what I meant you to be. Let me tell you the job description of a priest. He says it right here. He says, the lips of a priest should guard knowledge. That means preserve it. That means make sure that it's there available for the people. Not let the knowledge of the one true God slip into distant memory, fade from people's awareness. Guard that knowledge. He said, I want you to guard knowledge and people should desire instruction from your mouth. Why? Because you are the messenger of the Lord of armies. People should be standing in line to come listen to you teach from my word because they can tell that the authority of God himself is in your words. You speak on his behalf and you declare truth. Let me tell you something. In 2020, you'd you'd think it would be hard to tell, but it's not. There are people who have no relationship with Jesus Christ. There are people who have no real understanding of Christianity. There are people who have not been raised in church. They don't know how church works. And yet you can take somebody with almost no experience or background in religious behavior at all. And you can put them in front of a, uh, you can put them in an audience where they listen to a preacher who preaches the Word of God with authority, with the power of the Spirit of God, because it's true. And that, that message resonates with their hearts. They know somewhere deep down that they're being, they're, they're hearing truth spoken into their hearts. By the same token, you can take them over to another church and you can set them in front of Dr. Wonderful, who's just going to give you a nice devotional thought of whatever current event is, is on his trendy list right now. And they're going to walk away going, yeah, there was nothing there. How can somebody with no biblical knowledge, how can somebody with no church experience, how can they tell the difference between an authoritative, biblical, true message that has the Word of God as its core and, and the ramblings uh, uh, of a so-called pastor who, who, who just feeds pablum and baby food to his people because he hasn't spent any time himself in the Word of God? How is that so obvious to somebody with no church experience? It's obvious because truth connects at the deepest part of who we are as human beings. It touches our souls. God says, my priests, there should be people standing in line to get into the room to hear you teach because you're speaking as a messenger for the one true God. You're proclaiming His Word. You're guarding truth. You're making it available. They, it should resonate with their souls. But that's not what happened. He says, you, on the other hand, have turned from the way. You have caused many to stumble by your instruction. You have violated the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of armies. He said, Levi helped people turn away from iniquity, but your false teaching, your untrue teaching, your compromised teaching, you're pushing people into iniquity. So I, in turn, have made you despised and humiliated before all the people because you are not keeping my ways but are showing partiality in your instruction. 
You know, it's fascinating in our generation. Pastors who have abandoned the Word of God. They've gone with the trends. They've gone with the, with the fashionable topics. They say, oh, uh, God loves a socialist system. Black Lives Matter. Justice, no peace. Um, uh, rainbow flags hanging from the front doors of our churches. See, what's happened is the people charged with guarding truth and speaking that truth with the authority of God Himself, a way that connects with people at their deepest uh, point of their existence. What's happened is in order to be trendy, in order to be relevant, in order to be likable, They've walked away from truth, and guess what? Their churches aren't full of people. Their churches are virtually empty. Nobody respects those preachers. Nobody's standing in line to get into those churches. You say, well, 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 this movement or, or that movement, they, they, they think this guy's great. Yeah, they think he's great because he's confirming them in their sin. Everybody loves a preacher who tells you that there's nothing wrong with what you're doing. Just go ahead and do it. God's good with you. But when it's not true, there's no, there's no following for these, for these preachers. There's no, no uh, constituency for these priests. They've tried to be relevant and all they've done is they've emptied their pews because nobody wants that. What are the churches left in America? that are crowded. Where are those churches? I'll tell you where they are. They're churches that still have pastors who tell the truth and tie that truth to the revealed Word of God. We're not popular with the culture, but somewhere along the way, every priest, every preacher, every pastor, we have to decide who it is we want to be popular with. You can be popular with the culture at large or you can be popular with Almighty God. But you can't do both. God says, I've made the people despise you because they know you're not giving them truth. They know you're wasting their time. Verse 10, don't all of us have one father? Didn't one God create us? Why then do we act treacherously against one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? Judah has acted treacherously, and a detestable act has been done in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the Lord's sanctuary, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob the man who does this, whoever he may be, even if he presents an offering to the Lord of armies. Now, he's going to, he's, the prophet is going to speak here in terms of Judah as a nation, but he's going to quickly move to specific instances. You see, he switches from this, uh, attitude, this casual attitude towards worship, this, uh, refusal to be consistent and, and honest about what's true, and he says, as a nation, you have, it's as if you've married a foreign wife. Now, this is not a racial statement. When the Bible talks about God prohibiting Israel from marrying foreigners, it's never a racial component. It's always a spiritual component. The reason God didn't want Israel 
to marry the wives to marry wives from other nations is because inevitably those wives brought with them the false gods from their home nations and Israel was always spiritually compromised by that happening now in in the time of Malachi that process of marrying foreign wives is complicated by something even worse look where this goes verse 13 this is another thing you do you are covering the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer respects your offerings or receives them gladly from your hands. In other words, you know I'm not giving you blessings, and so you're crying big crocodile tears because you're not getting what you think you deserve. Verse 14, and you ask, why? Why is God not blessing us? Again, it's that kind of question that says, I don't know what you're talking about. You say that we've been unfaithful. How have we been unfaithful? You say that, 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 that we've defiled your sacrifices. How have we done that? You know, it, when you're a parent, uh, doesn't it get tiresome when the only defense your kid has is, I, 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 I don't know what you're talking about. Yes, you do. You know exactly what I'm talking about. No, I, I, I don't know. That's Israel is double da, doubling down on this ignorance. You ask why? Because even though the Lord has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth, you have acted treacherously against her. She was your marriage partner and your wife by covenant. Didn't God make them one and give them a portion of spirit? What is the one seeking? Godly offspring. So watch yourselves carefully so that no one acts treacherously against the wife of his youth. If he hates and divorces his wife, says the Lord God of Israel, he covers his garment with injustice, says the Lord of armies. Therefore, watch yourselves carefully and do not ask, act treacherously. What was happening here? Judah had, had a problem. They, God kept Judah's identity intact for 70 years while they were in Babylon. He did that so that they would not lose who they were. They could come back as a people through whom the line to the Messiah would still be in place. They come back to the promised land, and one of the first things they do, after being separate and distinct for generations in Babylon, refusing to intermarry, refusing to go outside the, the, the families of God's people, refusing to let pagans in the Babylonian Empire into their families, they come back to the promised land, and the first thing they do is they begin to marry the wives uh, uh, of the families of other nations that have filled in the promised land in their absence. Those nations that were resettled to this property when the Babylonians, you know, the, 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 Judah was not the only nation the Babylonians resettled. They marched Judah out of their homeland and put them in exile. But what they would do is then take another conquered people and they would resettle them back in Jerusalem. This, this, this land wasn't empty when the refugees came back to the promised land. There were people living there, but they were people who worshiped false gods. And God says, I protected your identity. I kept you pure as a spiritual people. Only now you've come back home and you haven't been diligent at all. In fact, 
he talks about, he uses the language of acting treacherously towards the wife of your youth. You fall in love. You marry the wife of your youth. You do it in the presence of God. He actually gives blessings to you. He puts his spirit on your marriage and he allows two people to become one flesh. The goal of that relationship was godly offspring. The next generation of those who would honor the covenant and continue this drama of redemption. That was the plan. But he says, you've not only begun to marry foreign wives and prostitute yourselves to false gods, but get this, when he talks about acting treacherously, they had become so casual about divorce that older Jews were discarding the wives that they've had for years and getting younger wives from the pagan people surrounding. It's not just that the young men were marrying, as we would put it, outside of the faith, but the old men were discarding their lifelong spouse and they were going and getting women from the pagans and bringing the the infection of false worship and ungodly paganism into their family lives god says i preserved your identity for generations in exile and you won't even preserve your spiritual identity in the land of promise i've had people over the years ask me what i what i think about interracial marriage should people of different races marry this is not as controversial today probably as it was a generation ago but but here's my answer and it's always been the same answer i don't care about race i don't care who marries whom i don't care about black brown yellow red white I don't care about any of that. What I care about is faith. And the New Testament is very clear, just as the Old Testament is very clear. The charge given in Scripture is not marry within your race. The charge given all the way through Scripture is marry within your faith. That's what's true. The only way... For marriage to live up to God's intention for marriage is for two people who share faith in the true God to come together to become one flesh and to produce godly offspring, which becomes the next generation of those who follow God, who worship Him faithfully, and who perpetuate that line of redemption from generation to generation. Maybe somebody out there that say, just pastor, I, I just can't go with you on this one. I don't care. <laughs> Until you can show me biblically that race is an issue in God's mind, I won't be changed. God doesn't care about race. God cares about faith. And Judah was guilty of compromising their faith by marrying women of another faith. They They ruined the marriages that they did have by casually divorcing the the wife of their youth to go out and find these young, attractive wives, and they polluted the identity of God's people spiritually.
Well, look at chapter 3. Chapter 3, I've entitled, The King is Coming. You have wearied the Lord with your words. That's the last verse of chapter 2. Yet you ask, how have we wearied him? Same dialogue. God makes a complaint. They shrug their shoulders and say, how did we do that? How did we weary him? When you say everyone who does what is evil is good in the Lord's sight and he is delighted with them or else where is the God of justice? See, here's the problem. He says, you've wearied me. How have we wearied you? What did, what did we do? He says, here's what you did. Because you have no respect for truth, because you're not willing to submit to the instruction of my word, because you're not willing to live by the standards of my nature that's been revealed to you, what you've done is you've either said God honors people who do wrong. In other words, there's no punishment for doing wrong. God's okay with it. Or you've put it another way. You've said what is evil is good in the Lord's sight or else you've asked the question, where is the God of justice? In other words, you imply that either God has signed off on evil as though he's not bothered by it or you've suggested that he's bothered by it, but he doesn't seem to have the ability to do anything about it. You've got two takes on God and both of them are bad. God's nature is compromised because he looks at evil and he says, oh, that's okay. Don't worry about it. That's where we are in 2020. Pulpit after pulpit, church after church across our nation, you have people saying, you know, God's okay with this. You don't have to change. You be just like how you are. You be just how he made you to be. Listen, God loves you too much to leave you the way you are. He has something better for you than the way you are. But we've compromised his reputation with this very same attitude. Oh, God's fine with it. You do whatever you want to do. You live however you want to live. He's, he's good with it. Or you have people who are saying, well, 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 God apparently, uh, we don't have to, we don't have to pay attention to what God thinks because, because he apparently doesn't have the ability to make things different. He doesn't seem to be judging anybody in our generation. Everybody that does wrong seems to get away with it. So why shouldn't we just jump on board? I love the language. God says, I listen to you talk and you just make me tired. You weary me. So he says what I'm, what he's going to do. Verse three, chapter one. See, I'm going to send my messenger and he will clear the way before me. Then the Lord you seek will suddenly come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant you delight in. See, he's coming, says the Lord of armies. He says, I'm going to send a messenger. I'm going to send one more prophet and he's going to announce that i'm coming the master of the house the lord is coming one more prophet who's that prophet john the baptist what is he going to do he's going to point at a man walking towards him and he's going to say behold there's the lamb who takes away the sins of the world one more prophet is coming. He's going to clear the way because I'm going to come myself. Verse 2, but who can endure the day of his coming and who will be able to stand when he appears? 
For he will be like a refiner's fire and like launderer's bleach. He will be like a refiner and purifier of silver. And he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. Then they will present offerings to the Lord in righteousness. And the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will please the Lord as in days of old and years gone by. I will come to you in judgment. I will be ready to witness against sorcerers and adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker, the widow and the fatherless, against those who deny justice to the resident alien. They do not fear me, says the Lord of armies, because I, the Lord, have not changed. You descendants of Jacob have not been destroyed. Now we've got to talk about this because this is the, this is the theme of, the, uh, of this book. Verse 6 of chapter 3. Because I, the Lord, have not changed, you descendants of Jacob have not been destroyed. Now remember where the chapter started. It started with people saying, God doesn't seem to be bothered by evil. God doesn't seem to be judging anybody. God doesn't even seem to be able to do anything. So what difference does it make how we live? Why does it matter if we live a certain way or or, or choose to live a different way? Now what you would expect, what you would expect God to say is, I'm going to show up. And because I haven't changed, I will bring judgment to you. See, that makes sense to me. Because my standards have not changed, because you've chosen to live in a way that goes against everything I've told you from the beginning, because my standards don't change, because I don't change, when I come, you're going to be sorry. That's what you expect him to say. But what does he say? He says, you've lived any way you want to. I'm going to come and I will meet you where you are. But but notice this bizarre thing. I mean, be sure you get the language here. Instead of saying, I'm going to come and because I never change, I'm going to wipe you out. Instead, he says, when I come, I will be like a refiner's fire. That is to purify something. I'll be like launderer's bleach. That is to clean off stains. I'll be like a refiner and a purifier of silver. I'll purify the sons of Levi. I'll refine them like gold and silver. Then they will present offerings to the Lord in righteousness. I will come in judgment and I'll be ready to witness against sorcerers and adulterers. Now look what he's saying. Against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker uh, and the widow and the fatherless, against those who deny justice to the resident. Look what he says. I'm going to come and when I come, those who are not mine... I'm going to judge them. I'm going to come in judgment. I'm going to speak to the sorcerers and the, the ones who have perverted justice. I'm going to be, uh, I'm going to come after those who have oppressed the poor, who have mistreated the widows, who have manipulated the weak. I'm going to come for those who are not my people and they are not going to be ready to stand when I show up. But that's not what he said about his people. Do you see what he said? He said, when I come, my people, I'm going to treat them like a refiner's fire. I'm going to bring launderer's bleach. I'm going to purify them. I'm going to clean their stains. They're going to once again offer to me offerings of righteousness flowing out of hearts made right with me. And then he says, because I, the Lord, have not changed, you descendants of Jacob have not been destroyed. He doesn't say, because I haven't changed, I'm coming for you. He says, because I haven't changed, you have a chance 
to be made right. What does that tell us? Because I haven't changed? It tells us that God's core characteristic, the essence of who He is, is love and grace and mercy. We've been through 12 minor prophets. And guess what? Judgment is always the last resort. Judgment is always what God has to fall back on when nothing else works. But His nature is grace and mercy. Man, don't, don't you remember, don't you remember Jonah? For all of Jonah's hard-headedness, running in the opposite direction, trying to avoid going to Nineveh with the message of, uh, of judgment that was coming. What, what did Jonah, Jonah knew God better than just about anybody in his generation. And he said, I didn't want to tell them judgment was coming because I knew they would repent and I knew that you would forgive them. Why? Because he never changes. It is his nature. You see, there is an accuser. We talk about the accuser of the brothers. That's what the New Testament calls him. He's the enemy of God, and he's the enemy of God's people. And he loves to accuse us. He accuses us before the Father. He says, you know, just like he did with Job. He, Job doesn't worship you because he loves you. He just worships you because you give him stuff. God says, okay, we'll take all the stuff away. We'll see. Job's faith proved that it was really based on God. It wasn't based on stuff. He's the accuser of the brothers. But while he accuses us in the presence of God, you know what else he does? He loves to accuse God in our ears. He loves to tell us, you can't be right. You've, you've, you've messed up. You've done stuff. God's going to zap you. He's, you're never going to be useful to him. He, he's not proud of you. He doesn't like you. I mean, it, he lies about God to us every day. And yet, Malachi 3, 6 ought to be a verse that you have memorized, that you quote in spiritual warfare when the enemy attacks your mind, when he tells you that God is not willing to forgive you. God wants to judge you. God is mad at you. God is angry at you. The verse says you are not destroyed because I never change. Mercy is who I am. Grace is who I am. Love is my name. That means that no matter what we've done, we make our way home. And like that father of the prodigal son, God is there to wrap us up in His arms and to call us His children. Quit listening to the liar. Accuse God in your head. The very fact that grace and mercy are constantly available to His people is because He never changes. We've so misunderstood that verse. We say, man, God will judge you. God will judge you for your sin because he, he never changes. He's unchanging. 
Yeah, that's true. He's unchanging, but that's not what that means. It means that grace and mercy is always his default. It's always his first choice. And he wanted them to know that. Verse 7, he's going to take us on a little monetary test of his promises. (laughs) This is interesting. In verse 7, it says, Since the days of your fathers you have turned from my statutes, you have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of armies. You see, he's just said, you've not been destroyed because I don't change. So quit playing with false gods and and foreign wives and pagan influences and and evil practices and, and trendy cultural sins. Come home. Return to me. Yet you ask, how can we return? The implication of the question is, return from where? We haven't gone anywhere. Man, we're in church every week. We go to the temple. We give the sacrifices. We're we're like clockwork on our religious obligations. Return from where? We haven't gone anywhere. God says, okay. I'll give you one example. Will a man rob God? Well, you're robbing me. And here they go. They double down. How do we rob you? You ask. What? I mean, the style of this little book is ridiculous. This dialogue with people talking back to God like like they don't have a clue what he's talking about. He says, "I'll, I'll tell you how you can return to me. Financially, you rob me every single day. How do we rob you? Well, he's going to tell them. By not making the payments of the tenth or the tithe and the contributions. You are suffering under a curse, yet you, the whole nation, are still robbing me. Bring the full tenth into the storehouse so there may be food in my house. Test me in this way, says the Lord of armies. See if I will not open the floodgates of heaven and pour out a blessing on you uh, for you without measure. I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not ruin the produce of your land and your vine in your field will not fail to produce fruit, says the Lord of armies. Then all the nations will consider you fortunate for you will be a delightful land, said the Lord of armies. He says, listen, you're robbing me. You're not bringing the portion reserved for me out of all of the income, out of all the resources that I give to you. And you wonder why you can't make ends meet. You wonder why you're not experiencing blessing. You wonder why your life never seems to work out. It's because until you do, until you show your loyalty by honoring my expectations with your resources, I'm not going to bless you with more resources. You can't be trusted with them. And then God says this, this really strange thing. I mean, one of the, one of the basic principles of scripture is you don't test God. You don't throw something out there and say, well, God, you prove yourself right here and I might consider following you. No, that's not okay. In fact, it's never okay to test God except in one particular situation. It's okay to test God if God invites you to test him. And that's what he does here. He says the most amazing thing. He says, test me in this way. See if I will not open the floodgates of heaven and pour out a blessing for you without measure. Listen, let's talk about money real quickly. One minute. 
Does the church need your money? No. Does God need your money? No. Do you need to give money to the cause of Christ? Yeah, you do. You want to know why? God doesn't need your money, and God will provide for the church. The church doesn't need your money. But you need to give your money because it is a statement of trust and loyalty to God. When we give out of what He has allowed us to have, when we give that back to His cause, what we are acknowledging is, I'm not responsible to pay my bills. I'm not responsible to make ends meet. God provides for me like a loving Father who takes care of His children. And when I give a tithe, when I give a 10% gift back to the, to the cause of Christ, what I'm doing is I'm acknowledging that I trust God more than I trust the balance in my bank account. He says, test me in this. I've had people my whole adult life tell me all the reasons. There's a laundry list of reasons. All the reasons why they can't afford to tithe. And yet God says here, listen, just test me. Just give it a shot. I've, I've, I've had people give testimonies of what God has done with their finances when they, when they learned how to give. I, I've, I've encouraged people to talk to others who are cheerful and, and glad givers because they've seen God work in their lives. But here's the bottom line. I don't know that anybody has ever gotten excited about giving from listening to somebody else, no matter how great their story was. Giving to God and receiving a blessing from God is this remarkable process that you can only do for yourself doesn't matter how much i preach it doesn't matter how many testimonies we have doesn't matter how many people will tell their stories until you test god you say pastor i'm telling you i can't afford a 10 percent reduction in my income and I'm telling you, on the authority of the Word of God, you will never make ends meet until you put God first. You can't afford not to give to God. Test me in this, he said, and see if I don't open the windows of heaven to provide for you. Who would you rather trust? Your ability to make ends meet knowing that an, an illness, an injury, a car accident, any of a thousand things could sidetrack your, your ability to work and provide for your family? Or would you rather have God in charge of taking care of your family? Test me, he said, and see if I don't live up to my word. Well... Real quickly, let's look at the closing verses. Verse 13 of chapter 3. Your words against me are harsh, says the Lord. And what do you think they're going to say? You ask, what have we spoken against you? We don't have a clue what you're talking about. You have said it is useless to serve God. What have we gained by keeping his requirements and walking mournfully before the Lord of armies? So now we consider the arrogant to be fortunate. Not only do those who commit wickedness prosper, they even test God and escape. He says, you, you speak ugly about me. You have come to the conclusion that there's no tangible benefit 
to serving God. In fact, you have swallowed the lie that the beautiful people, the Hollywood celebrities, the rich and powerful, you've swallowed the lie that, that God's okay with them and you might as well do the things that they're doing because that's the way to success and prosperity. He says, at that time, those who feared the Lord spoke to one another. This is my favorite paragraph in the book. At those time, those who feared the Lord spoke to one another. The Lord took notice and listened. So a book of remembrance was written before him for those who feared the Lord and had high regard for his name. They will be mine, says the Lord of armies, my own possession on the day I am preparing. I will have compassion on them as a man has compassion on his son who serves him. So you will again see the difference between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and the one who does not serve him. Here's what happens. The the people in general were saying, you know, it seems like the people who do wickedness are the ones that get away with everything. They seem to be the success stories. They're the billionaires. They're the, the celebrities. They're the beautiful people. They get elected to office. There's no, there's no uh, benefit to serving God. But then it says, but those who trusted God, those who believed God, those who were faithful to God, they began to talk to one another. They began to encourage each other. Listen, this is so relevant because what he says is in a culture that had left God behind as irrelevant, as unimportant, as not even something to be considered, he said there were still those who drew encouragement from each other because they were the faithful ones who walked with God. And you know what it says? It says God got a book and he wrote down the names of all the faithful. The world didn't recognize them. The world was only looking at the beautiful people. They were only looking at the celebrities. They were only looking at the politicians. They were only looking at at, at the rich and famous. But God has a book, and he's recording the names of the faithful. And he says, in that day when I make myself known, everybody in the world is going to know the difference between the evil and the righteous, between the faithless and the faithful. And they're going to recognize that the wicked never got away with anything. That the ungodly never were allowed to go one step further than God uh, uh, prepared for them. But I, I know who my people are. Listen, the world may never recognize us as faithful people, but we got to understand God never let one of his children slip through his fingers. He not only knows us, it says He's recorded our names in a book. And in that day that He shows Himself and He opens that book, He'll say, forget the celebrities, forget the politicians, forget the beautiful people, the rich and the powerful. These, these will come forward and receive the crown, the honor, the reward These are my people. Listen, do not buy the lie of the enemy that says the whole world is leaving us behind and those of us who are trying to be faithful followers of Jesus, we're somehow just outdated, outmoded, irrelevant, uh, uh, old-fashioned. Don't buy that. There are always in every generation a core of those who are faithful. They're drawing encouragement from one another. They're talking to each other. And best of all, God knows who they are. And there's a reward coming.
chapter 4, for look, the day is coming, burning like a furnace when all the arrogant and everyone who commits wickedness will become stubble. Those beautiful people that, that have rejected God, that have denied Him, they've lived a high life, that comes to an end. The coming day will consume them, says the Lord of armies, not leaving them root or branches. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings and you will go out and playfully jump like calves from the stall. You will trample the wicked for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day I'm preparing, says the Lord of armies. Remember the instruction of Moses, my servant, the statutes and ordinances I commanded him in Horeb for all Israel. We've seen that on recent Sundays. That's Moses receiving the law and faithfully teaching the people when they were at Mount Sinai. Verse 5, look, I'm going to send you the prophet Elijah before the great and terrible day the Lord comes. The prophet Elijah, that's the Old Testament designation for the one we know as John the Baptist, the final Old Testament prophet. He's coming to announce the king is arriving. The last verse of this book, the last verse before 400 years of silence, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. Otherwise, I will come and strike the land with a curse. He says the Messiah is coming. I would have to come in curse, in judgment, in wrath. But the Messiah is coming instead. He's going to bring righteousness. He's going to restore families. He's going to bring people together. And the people of God, the faithful, recorded in the book, that have been encouraging one another all along the way, He's coming for them. He's going to make themselves known. We're going to get to the New Testament and He's going to shift the image and all of a sudden He's going to talk about the bridegroom coming for His bride. 400 years of silence follows these verses. But in 400 years, waiting for Elijah, John the Baptist, that last and final Old Testament prophet, 400 years of silence, they had this to hold on to. I love you. You are my children. I never change. The next word they hear is a prophet saying, Behold the Lamb who takes away the sins of the world. And Jesus coming in the flesh to take the words of prophets and now take them out of a book and live them through a perfect human life so that we can see who we are meant to be. We call them the boys of summer. But these so-called minor prophets over about 200 years, they tell us a story that we desperately need to hear in 2020. It is that God has expectations. He loves His people. And we will be okay regardless of what happens in our generation. We will be okay because our God never changes. God bless you.